talking about Hanukkah tonight. Now you may, some people might think Hanukkah, why as Christians do we talk about Hanukkah? Hanukkah is for the Jews and all of this kind of nonsense. The very reason that people say that is because of their ignorance. And I do not mean that in a negative, like, slamming way. I mean it in a very legitimate way of they don't know. They just don't know that it is in the Bible. It is something Jesus, Yeshua, celebrated. It is important. And as you're going to see tonight, I believe that it is very prophetic. While it is indeed not a festival that God commanded for you to do, as I said, we saw Yeshua did keep it. It would be kind of like looking at history and seeing God's fingerprints in it and then realizing, wow, that's worth seeing. There are many things in you know, history that we can clearly see God's hand was in. And it's not even necessarily mentioned in Scripture. This is at least even mentioned in Scripture, predicted in Scripture. And so while maybe the Bible didn't command you to do it, God's word said Hanukkah would happen. And then God's people just simply said, let's commemorate what God said would happen, did happen, so that we don't forget. That's Hanukkah. Not a Jewish thing. It's a God thing. And so you're going to see why that is tonight. But just to, again, remind you of how the, the festivals... Um, the Lord's festivals fit into the timeline of, you know, our calendar. Passover begins the, the year out in the spring, <clears throat> where we have usually our March or April, but on the lunar calendar, <clears throat> the month of Nisan, on the 14th day of the month is Passover. Three days later is First Fruits. Fifty days later, we have Shavuot, which basically is a picture of Jesus' death, his resurrection, and the giving of the Holy Spirit. All happened on those perspective days. So all worthy of remembering and celebrating as Christians. Fall festivals, we had trumpets, atonement, and tabernacles. We just finished those not long ago. Seeing the Lord's coming at the seventh trumpet, and Judgment Day taking place after that uh, for the Days of Atonement, and then Tabernacles when after Judgment Day we get to live with the Lord. All things that are worthy for Christians to celebrate and remember and look forward to. And then there is this added one, as again, not necessarily prescribed, that hey, God said this is what you're supposed to do on this day, but something that we have said, hey, this is a great thing to remember because of God's deliverance. And something that, as I mentioned, God's word predicted would happen, prophesied it would happen, 
and yet hasn't completely happened. Which tells me that what did happen that was prophesied for Hanukkah is only a picture of what's going to happen in end times, as the Bible clearly outlines. And so if you want to understand what's going to happen in the end times, I think Hanukkah is your festival. To give you a picture of what to look for. In part, predicted by Daniel himself, a prophet of God, recorded in the Holy Scriptures by his holy prophets. Okay? You'll understand as we go. I've shown you this in the past sometime, but just wanted you to see it again, that many Christians deny the importance of these festivals, as I said, calling them Jewish, but yet fail to see that the scriptures are written around them. So if you want to understand the scriptures themselves, you would do well to, at the very minimum, study these festivals, even if you didn't keep them. I think you should keep them, but at the very minimum, you should know about them because the Bible is filled with them. The New Testament. Here is the, the book of John, and I have here in chapters, everything in blue and everything in yellow is happening during a festival time. I think much of what's in white probably is too. It just doesn't say it in Scripture. All the rest, it says it right in the book of John, that these are things going on during festivals. So you basically have chapter 1 and a little bit of chapter 2 that I can't prove to you, but I believe are, but I can't prove to you that are during festivals. And then from chapter 2 all the way through chapter 6, uh, verse, well, the feeding of the 5,000 is all happening at the time of a festival. Then we've got a couple of few verses there in chapter 6 that I can't prove to you, but probably all around the same time period. Anyway, uh, then you get to chapter 7 through 8. All of it we can see as during festivals. Chapters 10 is all during the festivals. Chapter 11, most of it I can prove from the scriptures. All the way through chapter 13, all during festivals. It's all in scripture. Go look at it. So we see, as I said, I think that there's good evidence to support even the white things were happening during festivals. Why is it that so much recorded history, so many important things are taking place during the time of these festivals? I think God is trying to tell us something. I think that these are signs, just as a Sabbath is a sign. Ezekiel 20 talks about that, that the Sabbath is a sign for Israel. And, and, and for the people, for the nations, for Christians. So Hanukkah, we see, is called the Feast of Dedication. And the reason being is because it is when the temple is going to be rededicated after it is, well, an abomination is set up on the corner of the temple. That's something that Matthew predicted would happen, though. But yet we see it did happen in the past historically, the very reason Hanukkah is being celebrated. So like I said, the past is a picture of the future. We'll talk more about it. But bottom line today, real quick, what's going on 
in a Jewish home during the time of Hanukkah, which starts here this next week. Well, <clears throat> you're going to see that they will put a menorah in the window. Now, a menorah is not technically the right term. It would be a Hanukkiah, which is slightly different than a menorah, but you might think it's a menorah. A menorah simply has seven candlesticks, which is what was in the temple. A Hanukkiah actually has nine. Eight plus what's called a, a shamus candle, which is a servant candle that is used to light the other ones. So really kind of eight and then your servant candle. This isn't because this is what was in the temple. This is because of the eight days of Hanukkah, which we'll explain later. It seems to probably have a connection with tabernacles, but, well, I'll give you a, a, a little rundown now. It seems that what may have happened is they did not have a chance to celebrate tabernacles because of this guy Antiochus IV that I'm going to describe would not let the Jews do any of their things. They were in war under the penalty of death to keep any of these festivals or even keep the Sabbath or have Torah in your home. And so once they defeated this enemy, they went and cleansed the temple and then celebrated it because they didn't get to celebrate it before and that was an eight-day festival. That's one possibility. I'll give you the other possibility later. But to celebrate this, they do a lot of greasy, oily foods, which you'll understand later. So they eat like potato latkes and donuts and fried foods. So who wouldn't like Hanukkah? Yeah, fried food for potluck next week, maybe. That's a good idea. Um, the dreidel is also this four-sided little top spinning thing that's got four Hebrew letters on it. Um, basically, it's, it's uh, Christian gambling, I guess, in some ways. Um, the four letters stand for a phrase, a great miracle happened there. We'll talk about this miracle later. But um, noon, the, like a letter N, uh, it, it stands for Nes, Gadol Hayashom, um, or Sham, the Noon for Ness, the Gimel for Gadol, a great, Haya here um, is the uh, H, and then the S or Sheen is Sham. And so you spin the, the dreidel, dreidel, and whatever it lands on, one of them you get all of the, the little chocolate coins, the gelt that's in the middle, or one of them you get half, or one of them you have to stick in some kilt. Uh, another one, what did I mean? You get nothing. Noon, you get nothing. Okay? So just a little game that they play. It's kind of fun. Um, when I say gambling, I, I use that loosely. It's usually, you know, candy. Kids get a bunch of candy. We, we would do this with our kids, and they all had some M&Ms or something that we would give them, and then they would play the game. And, you know, at the end, Noah would basically have all the... <laughs> all the candy, and I would make him share at the end or something. But anyway, um, bottom line, these are some of the traditions that they do. 
And they get together as family and they celebrate throughout the eight days playing these games. Um, each night they will light one of the candles on like one gets lit on day one, on day two, two of them get lit on day three, three of them all the way through the eight days of Hanukkah. Now, again, the Bible doesn't say any of this that you have to do. No traditions that you have to keep. But there are these are traditions that developed and then have been kept for centuries. We in our home just made up some of our own traditions and we memorize scripture for each of the eight days. And so for night one, when we light the first candle of the menorah, there's a scripture verse or verses that they usually one or two to three verses that they memorize and we talk about. And then on week or on night two, they do when we light candle one, they say that verse. When we do candle two, we talk about that verse and they're going to memorize it. So at the end of eight days, they've got all eight of these passages memorized. And so throughout the years, our kids have learned a lot of different Hanukkah verses. And I would pick out verses that would pertain to the season, pertain to what was going on here or pertain to what is to come in the future as Thessalonians would talk about, among other verses. And so we made our own traditions. We have kind of in America made it kind of a substitution for Christmas. And a lot of times here in America, there will be eight days, so they get gifts throughout those eight days. Some don't. Over in Israel, they really don't give gifts. Um, so... Point being, you do what you want. It isn't about the traditions. It's about what you can learn from it. I can only tell you our experience and that what my goal was and I think what I've seen the blessings to be. One, I told you that I scared the living daylights out of my kids growing up because of this festival, because of what it's all about. But I believe that was a blessing. And I think they would all agree with that. It caused them to put to memory a number of scripture verses. It caused them to understand what's to look for in the end times. It caused our family to have more of a biblical focus during this season than we ever learned or got from Christmas. Where Christmas, I think, for the most part, has become about gifts and family, it's lost its meaning, even though it is supposedly about the birth of Christ. Now again, I do not believe Jesus was born on Christmas. I'm not going to get into that tonight. Um, I believe he was born on the Feast of Tabernacles, probably. I think we can show you that that's around the time he was born, for sure. But um, when it comes to Christmas, it has been so secularized, even among Christians, that it's just kind of like, oh yeah, we better go to church now, and yes, Jesus is born, yeah, but now trees and presents and family and food. And we found that it kept us in the true reason for the season. To me, that was one of the greatest blessings. That 
we got rid a lot, uh, uh, got rid of a lot of the cultural secularism that has taken over. And like I said, the reason was Jesus. Well, what we're going to be hearing tonight is some history that you can read about in the book of Maccabees. It is in the Catholic Apocrypha. It used to be in the King James Version of Scripture, but it is no longer in our Scriptures today. I, too, personally do not believe that it is the inspired Word of God, but I do believe it is good spiritual history. These are true events that took place, just maybe not under the inspiration of God was it recorded. That's how I see the book of Maccabees. I see it very important. And if you'll take the time to read it, you will read some very hard things. It's almost like reading just what, the book of the martyrs. Because some of the torture that these people went through is more than what I'm willing to talk about with you tonight. Let me give you some of the history that is described here in Maccabees as far as why this was even celebrated. You probably have heard in, in history, biblically, there are some main countries that get all the, the publicity. Of course, you've got your four, Babylon, Assyria, uh, the Medes and the Persians, uh, Greeks and the Romans. I added five there, I guess. But Egypt is another one. In Daniel, in Daniel's dream, he focuses it down, though, to the Babylonians, the Medes and the Persians, the Greeks and the Romans. And that seems to be what the book of Daniel focusing on about end times. And you go, well, what, what, what about Egypt? Well, you know, Egypt pretty much was done. Alexander the Great's going to conquer it. It's going to be over. It, it, it never would be a world power again, just as the Bible prophesied, historically we see actually happened. So I think that's why Daniel didn't talk about it. Makes sense. Find it interesting, Daniel doesn't talk about the United States. Hmm. Maybe that's because we're not going to be a major factor in the end times. And you may say, oh, how could that happen? Go read Isaiah 7, 8. When a nation goes against God, he will destroy it, no matter how strong you think you are and how much you think, oh, that could never happen. That's all God needs to hear to say, I'll prove to you that it can. Shake your fist at God, and like the Titanic, nobody, even God, could not sink this ship. That's basically what I hear in an American attitude today. Well, the Medes and the Persians, you see Babylon is there, Daniel is there, but they fall by, and Daniel in Daniel's lifetime. And we see then that 
the Medes and the Persians take over. And it is actually King Darius or Darius who is going to allow the Israelites to come back to Jerusalem and build their temple. Today, really Iran is where the Medes and the Persians were ruling. And so in modern day, you would kind of want to think about Iran. And yet Daniel's talking about these figures having some sort of role in end times. Interesting. Because if Daniel, again, it's kind of like when we talked about Obadiah. I said Obadiah, everybody thinks, oh, that was the fall of Edom. It's all done and over. But I can show you in the scripture, no, Obadiah is still talking about end times. That's just a foreshadowing. Daniel, when most Christians read Daniel today, we talk about Babylon, the Medes and the Persians, the Greeks and the Romans, and now it's all done and now we just have to wait. And it's all history. I believe Daniel was talking about end times. Therefore, what happened in history is only a picture of what's going to happen in the end. Therefore, I think that maybe we still need to keep an eye. Who is the modern-day Medes and Persians? Somebody had asked the question when we went through Obadiah. Like, well, Edom, if, if Esau is gone and his descendants, what, what Edom, and I said, well, I think that God is talking about more about the geographical area, whoever's living in that time or in that area at the time. It's the same thing. So who's living in the area of the Medes and the Persians right now? Iran, mostly. So, I think we need to keep an eye on Iran in end times prophecy. The Greeks, then, uh, north of Greece was Macedonia. And that's where we're going to see a guy named Philip the Macedon. He hated the, the Medes and the Persians. He, he wanted to destroy them. Well, he never got to do so in his lifetime, but he had a son that grew up under his tutelage and under his culture and learned to hate the Medes and the Persians as much as he did. And so his son, named Alexander, later known as Alexander the Great, at the age of 20 years old, decided he was going to fulfill his father's vision as well. And so he went after the Medes and the Persians, King Darius. There is a famous battle that is going to take place here, the Battle of Issus. And you can see the, the sea on one side and there were mountains on the other. And what happened is there was this very narrow valley in which this battle was going to take place. And Alexander the Great, one of his first battles was to go up against Darius. Now Darius far outnumbered Alexander the Great, far outnumbered. You can go read, just Google the Battle of Asus, and, and you, you can find out the history about this, okay? Well, what ends up happening is Darius had so many men, they were fighting in such a small valley that he couldn't utilize all of the troops. So as a result, he loses. Alexander wins against all odds. Well... 
Alexander then keeps moving and he starts to move south. Now, if you look on a map, you know, uh, to get around from the sea up top, he was going to go down to Egypt. Well, as we talked about when we were looking at the geography of Israel, in order to get anywhere in the Middle East, you had to go through Israel, through Jerusalem. So history records that the, the Jews hear about this defeat. They know that Alexander the Great is going down to Egypt, and they are petrified because that means they're coming. He's coming to go through us. He's going to destroy us. So the high priests, well, the priests at that time, it records, went and prayed to God and said, God, what do we do? And the Lord answered their prayers and told the high priest that you are to go and make peace with Alexander. And you're to wear white robes. We don't know. I mean, this is just what's recorded. Okay? So sure enough, the priests go out to meet Alexander the Great before he gets to Jerusalem. They're in their white robes. And when they come and meet him, Alexander the Great gave them great respect. Even his men, his soldiers, were shocked because everywhere they would go, they would conquer. But Alexander the Great, for whatever reason, was giving these guys great respect. And they asked him why, and he says, well, I'm not necessarily giving these people respect, but I'm giving respect to the God of their land. Some interesting stories go along there. We are actually told that they opened up the scriptures and they actually showed him the book of Daniel and showed him this is you. Which, by the way, any scholar today would be able to take to Dan open up the book of Daniel and say, this was talking about Alexander the Great. And they showed him in scripture. This is you. So, it went so far that Alexander the Great even had these priests come back to Jerusalem and make an offering on his behalf to the God of all creation. Now, I'm not saying Alexander the Great was a good guy. I'm just saying that he had more respect for the God of creation than most Christians even have today, ironically. Well, from here, Alexander the Great leaves Jerusalem untouched, left him alone. As a matter of fact, he treated him quite well, was even going to cancel their taxes and all of these kind of things. He didn't do that anywhere else. But the God of all creation was fighting for Israel, fighting for the promises that he kept, God kept. So Alexander goes down to Egypt to fight. Well, later, after I think it was two years, there's a rumor that Alexander the Great died. I'll come back to that in, in later, uh, a later story, but just know that for now. He did not die, but the rumor was there. And in the meantime, Darius, way back up here, Darius was still alive. He was raising up another army. He was ready, and he was waiting for 
Alexander the Great to come back. Again, it's been a couple of years. And so he's been planning, and he knew what happened last time can't happen again, and so he prepared and he thought, where, again, if you go to the right, it's desert. They can't go that way. There's only a couple of ways they're going to have to go through Israel and only a couple of ways that they can come back. So what they did is he did some interesting planning and he went and he burned all the wheat fields and everything along the Euphrates River because when you got 10,000 men of Alexander the Great's men, you know that's a lot of mouths to feed. And so what he did is he... He made it so that there wouldn't be enough food and water for these people to go this direction, forcing them to go another direction. And then what Darius did was he cleared out a whole field so that he would be ready to fight in this open area when Alexander the Great came. Well, sure enough, his plan works. And he directs Alexander the Great to that spot. And a great war breaks out called the Battle of Gagamela. Again, go Google it. Read about it. It's history. History recorded in the book of Daniel. Darius even had elephants in, in their fighting, and you can see pictures of that as well. But despite all of that, before this battle, there was this omen that took place where they had a blood-red moon. Alexander and his men took that as a good sign, a good omen that God was going to fight for them. And sure enough, they win. From here, Alexander the Great moves on to what today is Afghanistan, all the way into India, and then from there, back to Babylon. And then Alexander dies in Babylon at the age, I think it was 33 years old. Seems of a sexually transmitted disease is what a lot of historians tell us. So a very short life, but he had no heir to replace him. And it is here, ultimately, where we're going to see the stages of Hanukkah being set up. Because he had no heir to take and rule in his place, his kingdom, which by that time had become vast, all around there, really just not Egypt or uh, Israel, um, what ends up happening is his kingdom is divided up into four places four different kingdoms, the Ptolemaic, the Seleucids, um, Cassandra, and uh, Lysimachus, Machus, I don't know how to pronounce these words, but bottom line is that they were divided up into those four areas. And what you can see is Israel is in a very bad spot now because these people didn't get along. They, It was kind of like, who's going to get the taxes from Israel? Who's going to make them subject? Who's, who's going to be controlling them? And so the Ptolemies and the Seleucids were kind of battling with each other, kind of you know, grabbing for power, and Israel was stuck in between this. Like I said, during the time of Alexander the Great, he was treating the Jews quite well, canceling taxes on sabbatical years, 
um, all of those kind of things, giving him special privileges. But when he died, all of that was about to change. It was okay for a short little bit after he died. One of the rulers of the Seleucids was Antiochus III. He tolerated the Jews, but again, this battling is going on. Well, when he dies, Antiochus IV arises, and he is going to put Judea under the Seleucid dynasty and under his rule. Again, for a very short period of time, they're treated well under Antiochus IV. It's almost like there was a, a covenant between them that later would be broken. Almost like halfway through, if that rings a bell. Well, this Antiochus IV gave himself the name Antiochus Epiphanes. When translated, it, it means God manifest. He called himself a god. Antiochus, the guy that is making a covenant with Israel, that will break his covenant with Israel, calls himself a god. Does that sound familiar? In the New Testament, talking about an antichrist who is going to do those exact same things, set himself up as god? You're going to see more parallels as we go. Well, Antiochus's strategy to take over and rule the world was a process called Hellenization. Hellenization basically meant to take upon the Greek culture so that you become so used to the culture that you don't even miss your own culture anymore. You don't practice your own culture anymore. I'll tell you what. Christians have been Hellenized straight to hell. <laughs> we have been Hellenized to the point where we have taken on upon, upon us a culture of paganism that most people don't even realize is pagan. The days of our week are all, you know, named after pagan gods. The months of our year are all named after pagan months. Our festivals are modeled after pagan festivals, even the festivals we use to celebrate Yeshua. We've been so Hellenized, we don't even know it. I'm not going to get into the details of that tonight, but that is how Alexander the Great wanted to take over. Well, some of the Jews, especially the more, what we would maybe call today the Orthodox, fought against this. But there were a few that succumbed to that pressure in the worldliness that he offered. Now, what kind of things? Well, first of all, there was this priest named Onias or Onias. And Onias was the high priest at the time. And he was opposing this Hellenization. He was saying, stop the compromise. You guys stop. Follow God's word. But he had a brother who was not a high priest, but the same you know, priestly lineage. And his brother didn't have the same views. His brother was a compromiser. 
His brother was all about it, and he went along with Antiochus' Hellenization schemes. And they had gymnasiums built. And a gym back then is not like what we think of as gyms. This is where lewd things would happen and nude, you know, bathing and all of these kind of stuff. It was, it was a Greek thing. Worshipping the body and all kinds of things like that. Worshipping Zeus. Setting up altars to Zeus. Matter of fact, Antiochus even had a body of Zeus, took the head off of Zeus, and then put his head on it. I'm a god. So, Onias fought against this, but people began to succumb to the culture. It was fun. The, the pleasures of this world were too attractive. To the point to where it became traditions Fun traditions didn't matter what God's word said or didn't say. Fact is, it was just fun. The flesh wanted it. I'll tell you what, we have so many traditions in Christianity today that I think are really not God-pleasing. And again, we don't even realize it, but we just do it. One of the things that has struck me this week so much in preparing for this was the fact of what these people, as I'm going to get into in a moment, did to keep the temple pure. People were boiled to death in cauldrons. Limbs removed. Tortured. All just to get them to eat pork. And they were willing to die not to do something as simple as that. I'm going to come back to that later, but what I want you to understand is this. You know, today, we are the temple of God. What will you do to keep your temple pure? I think about what even I myself will watch on TV. And believe me, I feel like I do a pretty good job or felt like I'm not watching pornography and, and nudity and you know whatever but even still there are things that I watch on TV that will have the name of the Lord taken in vain and I continue it made me realize how much Hellenization has happened in our life that we can't even turn a TV off Because it's fun. My flesh wants it. I deserve a little R&R. &R. We'll come back to that. But the bottom line is, just as many succumbed to the cultural pressure, I don't think we're any different. Well, Antiochus, as I said, went back to Egypt. It looked like he was going to win, but there was an emerging power that's going to come after the Greeks, right? The Romans. And the Romans sent a delegation that went in, to Egypt and said, if you conquer Egypt, we are taking that as a direct threat against Rome. And it got so serious that they, the guy that literally made a circle 
around Antiochus in the dirt and said, you don't leave this circle until you give us an answer of what you're going to do. You don't leave until then. Well, Antiochus decided to go back in shame and kind of with his head down, feeling a little bit defeated. And frankly, a little ticked off. So as Antiochus goes back, he's got to, to go back home, he's going to have to go through Jerusalem. When he gets to Jerusalem, he sees that some things have taken place while he's been gone those two years. Well, what Antiochus had done, remember Onias was like, no, I'm not going to compromise. So there was a guy named Jason, whose real name was Joshua, but the culture took him in. And so he took on a Greek name, Jason. Gave Antiochus a bribe so that he could be high priest and said, I will make sure these gymnasiums are built. I will enforce these things. I will Hellenize these people. So Jason did that. Do you know we have people in the church today as well, the, the priests you might say, that are saying it's okay to be Hellenized. It's okay, you're under grace. Well, it didn't take long, and there was another guy named Menelaus who offered a bigger bribe and kicked Jason out. And so Menelaus was doing the same thing, except for he went and made sure that Onias was dead, the original guy who was standing up. You might say the saints were being persecuted. So he kills Onias, or Onias and, and then we have Jason is out, Menelaus is ruling. Well, these two then, Jason hears, or thinks he hears, it's rumored that Alexander the Great is dead when he was bit down in Egypt. So Jason decides, I'm going to take my spot back. And these two go at it. Well, when Antiochus gets up here to Jerusalem, he's ashamed enough, ticked off enough, tired enough that he says, I am done with this. And so he goes and does everything the Bible says the Antichrist is going to do. What was like a nice little treaty going on and peaceful for about three and a half years, all of a sudden the table is turned and Antiochus turns on him completely. He desecrates the temple by sacrificing a pig on the altar even takes and makes stew out of it, takes the stew with all the pig juices and pours it on the Torah scrolls. He says, you guys are not to circumcise your children anymore. You're not to keep the Sabbath. You're not to have Torah or scripture in your homes anymore. And by the way, this is all happening around 164 B.C. This is all happening in a period of silence from the time of Malachi, the last verse of the Old Testament ending, till the time John the Baptist is born. There's about a 400-year period, and it's around 164 B.C., in the middle of that, roughly, that this is happening. 
We call it a period of silence because the Bible doesn't tell us what's going on. It warned us about what was going to go on. So we have Maccabees and whatnot recording what was going on. Well, he does all kinds of things at this point, as I said, Antiochus does, because he's so angry, so fed up with the Jews. Tens of thousands of Jews were killed. He, at this point then, set up an altar in the temple to desecrate and defile it. Just like Thessalonians says in Matthew, so when you see the abomination that causes desolation set up in the temple, let the reader understand. Oh, by the way, Jesus also said this. So, when you read what the prophet Daniel said, telling me that what Daniel said was not fulfilled with Antiochus, that it's a future event because Jesus is warning about what Daniel said, you know, almost 200 years after the events here. This is prophetic. Well, he goes and he's making these priests sacrifice pigs on the altar and eat pork, eat pig. Well, there was this one priest who was about to do this. And Mattathias, he was kind of like a, a more modern um, Phineas. Do you remember um, at the Baal of Peor, the Israelites had taken all of these Moabite women in and there was this one guy who had so much zeal for God because God said you're not to intermarry with them that this one Israelite even had brought in a, a Moabite woman from their pagan festivals and he saw this and he said, I can't believe you're doing this. So he takes a spear and he ran it right through both of them. And God says that Phineas would be blessed and his offspring blessed because of his zeal for God. Now, 164 BC, there's another Phineas-like creature, this Mattathias. Shouldn't call him creature, but person. Mattathias. This priest is about to go and make a, a sacrifice, a pig, on God's altar. And he gets so angry, he goes and he kills this priest. And he calls for people to stand up. And a few people stand up against the lies, the culture, the paganism, the Hellenization. And they run to the hills. By the way, what did Jesus say? When you see the abomination that causes desolation, let the reader understand, flee to the mountains. This is what Mattathias and a bunch of farmers with uh, pitchforks and axe goads or whatever, or ox goads and all of those things, they, they fled. Well, one year later, Mattathias is going to die. Uh, I think he just gets sick. But his son, he raised a boy, right? A guy named Judah. 
his son is going to pick up where he leaves off. And he is going to be such a good warrior that he becomes known as Judah the Hammer. Judah the Maccabee. I'll explain where Maccabee comes from in a second. But Judah the Hammer. He was known for coming in and striking and then leaving. And these guys basically did guerrilla warfare for a little over three years. Guerrilla warfare where there would be these little posts, uh, you know, Greek outposts of, of a few soldiers and they'd come and they would attack them and then back to hide. Go find another one, go attack them and back to hide. And they just kept dwindling these down and they couldn't ever find them and they couldn't conquer them. And this went on for a little over three years. This faithful remnant who refused to bow down. Let me just give you a couple of stories that you can read about in Maccabees. Eliezer, I'm just going to give you the highlights. A 90-year-old priest would not eat meat that had been offered to Zeus. And they wanted to keep this poor man alive, and they said, how about this? Just pretend to eat it so that at least the people think you ate it and he wouldn't even do that because he says, I will not deceive the people into sinning. So even giving the appearance of evil, this 90-year-old priest was tortured and killed to keep from giving the appearance of evil. A lady named Hannah who had seven sons, and those seven sons, each one tortured one at a time just to get the one down the line to compromise all the way down to the youngest son. And, and I can't even tell you about the torture. But to the very last one, they stood up proudly, willing. They did not shrink back from death, but considered it pure joy to suffer for the Lord. As a matter of fact, the youngest one said this, I look forward to the day my God will resurrect me before he was dead, tortured to die. And then there was this Mattathias that began the Maccabean revolt. You know what's interesting? Do you know how many days it's going to be from the time that Mattathias stood up until they're going to rededicate this temple? 2,300 days. If you know your scriptures, that means something. Daniel wrote about it. Blessed is he who waits for and reaches the end of the 2,300 evenings and mornings. And yet scripture records to the day. But again, Jesus says, this is only a foreshadowing because it hasn't been fulfilled yet. A picture of of what to look out for in end times. You go read Daniel 8, and you'll see the ram with two horns. That is basically the Medes and the Persians, and then you can kind of follow through there. But the bottom line is, there are some good biblical reasons to celebrate this. Like I said, it's prophetic. You want to know what things are going to look like in the end times? I have a feeling it's going to look just like this. Different characters but the same basic script. From the same basic areas, probably, too. 1 John 
or not first, just John. John chapter 10, we see this festival being celebrated by Jesus. It says, then came the Feast of Dedication at Jerusalem. That is what Hanukkah is called, the Feast of Dedication. It was winter, and Yeshua was in the temple area walking in Solomon's colonnade. Jesus was there, and this is all happening at Hanukkah. And you can go read in John 10 all of what Jesus is doing. And you know what he's talking about? Miracles. You know what Hanukkah is known for? A miracle. I'm going to get back to that coming up shortly. Daniel 11 prophesied in verses 3 and 4, Then a mighty king will appear who will rule with great power and do as he pleases. All right? So this is important. After he has appeared, his empire will be broken up and parceled out towards the four winds of heaven. Who do you think this is talked about? Alexander the Great. Again, I don't think you'll find a, a, a scholar, a biblical scholar, that will deny that that was talking about Alexander the Great. But again, I think that was the only, the first fulfillment. He will not go to his descendants, because he had none, nor will it have, he, uh, will it have power to, uh, that he exercised. The four that split up never did get the power that Alexander the Great had. Because his empire will be uprooted and given to others, to those four people. The mighty king, as I said, was Alexander the Great. Then Daniel is going to go on to describe another person who is going to succeed Alexander the Great. And we all know him as the Antichrist. And yet, historically, we know this guy to be Antiochus Epiphanes. Verse 28. Verse 28, or 21 through 28 of Daniel 11 says, Of this man who would replace him, a despicable person, and his heart will be set against the Holy Covenant. Verse 31, His forces will desecrate the sanctuary and do away with the regular sacrifice, and they will set up the abomination of desolation. It fits exactly, as you go read Daniel, the history that I just gave you. So, verse 36, he says, Then the king shall do according to his own will. He shall exalt and magnify himself. Like, even give himself the name Epiphanes. God manifest above all gods and speak blasphemy against the God of gods. So you can see pictures here of Antiochus and making his head on Zeus and all of those kinds of things. Um, the question I have to ask is, if we can't stand even against the pressures of the church today in standing up for God's word, what are you going to do when real persecution comes against Hellenization. The Bible warns that he's going to go after the saints, and many will fall. Verse 32 says, By smooth words he's going to turn to godlessness, those who act wickedly toward the covenant. 
but the people who know their God will display strength and take action. In other words, he's going to turn people towards godlessness. He's going to turn people away from keeping God's laws. But there are going to be people like Mattathias, Eliezer, and others, saints who know their God, who are going to display great strength and take action. People like Judah the Maccabee, Judah the Hammer. You see, this is prophetic of people, a remnant that God is calling to stand up when the Antichrist comes. He's coming, folks. The Bible says it. We can ignore it and plan another vacation, buy another boat, buy another whatever toy we want, maybe four more guns. We can, we can fill our time and not think about these things, but let me tell you, it's not going to change the fact that it's going to happen. Yeshua said, so when you see the abominations uh, that causes desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel, let the reader understand. That's what's going on here. Verse 32, the people who know their God should be strong and carry out great exploits. I believe that that was the first prediction of that, or the first fulfillment, was 167 B.C. So the soldiers that came to Modin outside Jerusalem to force the Greek worship on the influential Jewish family led by Mattathias and his five sons, the stories that I was just telling you about. They would not forsake God. These were the men of great strength. They drove off the soldiers, these Greek soldiers yelling, whoever is for the Lord, follow me. And that's what started the rebellion. Whoever is for the Lord, follow me. Their slogan was this, who among the mighty is like thee, O God? In Hebrew, me, chamocha, ba'elim, Adonai. Take the first letters, M-K-B-A, Maccabee. That's where they get Judah the Maccabee from. So, these were untrained farmers, like I said, who were men of strength. Yeah. So, People who know their God. Guys, you don't have to be a pastor. You don't have to be a soldier. All you have to do is know your God. Know what it, your God asks of you. And what does the Lord your God ask of you but to fear the Lord your God? To serve the Lord your God. To love the Lord your God. To keep His commandments, it says. This is what the scriptures say. What does the Lord your God ask of you? To do those things. You don't have to be these great and mighty people to be those that are going to be strong and carry out great exploits. God is going to use those who are faithful to him. 
faithful to His Word. Not because they understand it, not because they understand even why they're doing what they're doing, but simply because, nevertheless, because you said, Lord, like we said there before with Peter, Lord, we fished all night long, but because you said so, we'll throw out our nets. Doesn't make sense to me. I don't understand. I really don't even want to. But because you said, I'm willing. Those are the men that are going to carry out great exploits. Daniel 8, 13. How long will it be until the daily sacrifice is restored again? Remember, Antiochus stopped the sacrifice. How long until the desecration of the temple is avenged and God's people triumph? 2,300 evenings and mornings and the holy place will be properly restored. 2,300 mornings and they rededicated the temple of God. And this was only a first foreshadowing of an end time event. You can see here these 2,300 days. It was on the 25th day of the Hebrew month of Kislev, basically coming up this week on our calendar, that the Maccabees won. They went back into Jerusalem. They took the temple back that had been desecrated, it, and they began to purify it. And they found, as the story goes, however, we do not have it recorded, but as tradition goes, they went in and to purify the temple, they needed to have these the menorah lit. And they only found one little tiny cruise of oil that had enough oil to burn one night. And it miraculously burned for eight days until more oil could be brought back. So traditionally, this is where we get the eight days of Hanukkah today. Because... God provided a miracle that the oil never went out for those eight days. We don't know if that really happened or not. There is no record of it. But I can tell you this, because Yeshua, when he is coming to celebrate the Feast of Dedication, talks about being the miracle and believing on the miracles I know that even then, pretty close to the time period all of this history was happening, they believed it happened. Which leads me to think that there is still something about this miracle. Even though it may not. One of two things. Either it was celebrating you know, the uh, tabernacles, or the miracle that took place, or both. But it seems to me that Yeshua may be indicating that at least at that time they were believing this miracle happened. So, the main prophetic word during this festival is Zechariah 4.6. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord of hosts. It was during this time that the Jewish people, their minds were, were set on miracles, dedication of the temple, deliverance, oil, light. Well, it is during this festival 
The scriptures tell us it's this festival. In John 10, 27 and 28, it says, My sheep hear my voice and I know them as they follow me. Those who know their God will be strong and carry out great exploits. Those who hear God's voice will follow me. All who are for the Lord follow me, Mattathias said. Can you see a theme here? Apply that to the future, guys. Are you going to do what God says nevertheless? Nevertheless, what you reason, what maybe other Christians are telling you to do or not do, or maybe, uh, you know, it makes no sense to you at all. Are you going to follow him because you hear God's voice? You hear his word. And it says, and I give eternal life to them and they shall never perish and no one shall snatch them out of my hand. He will protect them. John 10 verses 37 and 38. If I do not the if I do not the works of my father, believe me not. But if you if I do, though you believe not, believe the works that you may know and believe that the father is in me and I in him. Follow the miracle, follow me, believe the miracles. If you can't believe what I said, look at what I've done. And yet, this is what he's bringing to their mind at the Feast of Dedication at Hanukkah. Well, I've hinted quite a bit at future application. I'm going to stop here tonight. But this is where I'm going to talk about next week. We're going to dive into what the Bible says about the Antichrist that is to come. And we're going to refer back to this historical event as you've seen. But I hope that just understanding this and maybe even go back and read Maccabees and, and see what these people were willing to do to protect the temple of God. And ask yourself, am I willing to even be bored for an hour to protect the temple of God? Am I willing to say no to something I really want to protect the temple of God? Let alone, am I willing to have a, an arm cut off? To be boiled in a cauldron? To protect the temple of God. To stand up for His Word. I think these are things that we need to talk about. You know, this is exactly what you know, Jamie Walden talks about all the time. We can either be an asset or a liability when the time comes. Not only keeping our, our physical health up, because, hey, if we have to run and my family is... <laughs> I'm not going to leave them behind. And because they become a, li a liability, I'm going to die. Not just them, but... A lot of people could die because they're a liability. They didn't prepare. That's just on the physical perspective. How about from a, spirit, a, a spiritual perspective? Lot 
did not prepare his family. And so even when he knows that the world is coming to an end, Sodom and Gomorrah are going to be destroyed. The angel told him that. His son-in-laws think he's just joking. He literally has to drag them out of the city because they were a liability, not an asset. We need to be preparing our children spiritually, physically, so that they are lia not uh, assets, or not liabilities, but assets. And that's why I'm glad I taught my children about these things so that they could prepare their hearts, their minds, so that they would be ready if and when that day comes in their lifetime. I can guarantee you Mattathias had trained his child Judah up before that day came. Because there's no way Judah would have followed it otherwise. And so Judah, wherever you are, live up to your namesake. It's a great, and, and by the way, I'm sure that's not the Judah you were talking about, but it, the, the lion of the tribe of Judah. So anyway, let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for just preserving the history. Lord, though we may have looked at a lot of history today, we've seen from Daniel, it is truly your story, his story that we are reading. You've warned us. You've warned us that there's a day coming spoken of by the prophet Daniel that is going to happen in the future. Lord, we want to be assets for the kingdom of God, not just for our physical um, safety, but mostly for the spiritual well-being of our families and those around us. Lord, help us to right now be willing to protect the temple of God, to stand up for truth and to hear your voice that we would follow you. Lord, not all of this is about salvation, but it can affect our salvation. Lord, we know I, I don't have to be perfect to be saved. I can't even be good enough to be saved, but yet... Your word tells me if I'm not being good, I must not be saved. Something's wrong, and I've lied to myself, deceived myself into believing that I really love you. And so, Lord, examine our heart. Reveal in us, Lord. Test me and know my heart. Search me and know my anxious thoughts. And lead me in the way everlasting. In the name of Yeshua, I pray. Amen.